Chapter Three of Sailing Alone Around the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter Three, consisting of. Goodbye to the American coast, off Sable Island in a fog, in the open sea, the man in the moon takes an interest in the voyage, the first fit of loneliness, the spray encounters La Vaguisa, a bottle of wine from the Spaniard, a bout of words with the captain of the Java, the steamship Olympia spoken. Arrival at the Azores. I now stowed all my goods securely, for the boisterous Atlantic was before me, and I sent the topmast down, knowing that the spray would be the wholesomer with it on deck. Then I gave the lanyards a pull and hitched them afresh, and saw that the gammon was secure, also that the boat was lashed, for even in summer one may meet with bad weather in the crossing. In fact, many weeks of bad weather had prevailed. On July the first, however, after a rude gale, the wind came out nor'west and clear, propitious for a good run. On the following day, the head sea having gone down, I sailed from Yarmouth and let go my last hold on America. The log of my first day on the Atlantic in the spray reads briefly: nine thirty a.m. Sailed from Yarmouth, four thirty p.m. Passed Cape Sable, distance three cables from the land, the sloop making eight knots, fresh breeze northwest. Before the sun went down, I was taking my supper of strawberries and tea in smooth water under the lee of the east coast land, along which the spray was now leisurely skirting. At noon on the third of July. Iron-bound island was a beam. The spray was again at her best. A large schooner came out of Liverpool, Nova Scotia, this morning, steering eastwards. The spray put her hull down astern in five hours. At six forty-five p.m., I was close under Chibucto Head Light near Halifax Harbour. I set my flag and squared away, taking my departure from George's Island. Before dark, to sail east of Sable Island, there are many beacon lights along the coast. Sambro, the Rock of Lamentations, carries a noble light, which, however, the liner Atlantic on the night of her terrible disaster did not see. I watched light after light sink astern as I sailed into the unbounded sea, till Sambro, the last of them all, was below the horizon. The spray was then alone, and sailing on, she held her course. July four, at six a.m., I put in double reefs, and at eight thirty a.m. turned out all reefs. At nine forty p.m., I raised the sheen only of the light of the west end of Sable Island, which may also be called the Island of Tragedies. The fog, which till this moment had held off, now lowered over the sea like a pall. 
I was in a world of fog, shut off from the universe. I did not see any more of the light. By the lead which I cast often, I found that a little after midnight I was passing the east point of the island, and should soon be clear of dangers of land and shoals. The wind was holding free, though it was from the foggy point south-southwest. It is said that within a few years Sable Island has been reduced from forty miles in length to twenty, and that of three lighthouses built on it since 1880, two have been washed away, and the third will soon be engulfed. On the evening of July the 5th, the spray, after having steered all day over a lumpy sea, took it into her head to go without the helmsman's aid. I had been steering south-east by south, but the wind hauling forward a bit, she dropped into a smooth lane heading south-east, and making about eight knots her very best work. I crowded on sail to cross the track of the liners without loss of time, and to reach as soon as possible the friendly gulf stream. The fog lifting before night, I was afforded a look at the sun just as it was touching the sea. I watched it go down and out of sight. Then I turned my face eastward, and there, apparently at the very end of the bowsprit, was the smiling full moon rising out of the sea. Neptune himself coming over the bows could not have startled me more. "'Good evening, sir,' I cried. "'I'm glad to see you.' Many a long talk since then I have had with the man in the moon. He had my confidence on the voyage. About midnight the fog shut down again, denser than ever before. One could almost stand on it. It continued so for a number of days, the wind increasing to a gale. The waves rose higher, but I had a good ship. Still in the dismal fog I felt myself drifting into loneliness, an insect on a straw in the midst of the elements. I lashed the helm, and my vessel held her course, and while she sailed I slept. During these days a feeling of awe crept over me. My memory worked with startling power. The ominous, the insignificant, the great, the small, the wonderful, the commonplace, all appeared before my mental vision in magic succession. Pages of my history were recalled which had been so long forgotten that they seemed to belong to a previous existence. I heard all the voices of the past laughing, crying, telling what I had heard them tell in many corners of the earth. The loneliness of my state wore off when the gale was high, and I found much work to do. When fine weather returned, then came the sense of solitude which I could not shake off. I used my voice often, at first giving some order about the affairs of a ship, for I had been told that from disuse I should lose my speech. At the meridian altitude of the sun I called aloud, Eight bells, after the custom on a ship at sea. Again from my cabin I cried to an imaginary man at the helm, How does she head there? And again, Is she on her course? But getting no reply, 
I was reminded the more palpably of my condition. My voice sounded hollow on the empty air, and I dropped the practice. However, it was not long before the thought came to me that when I was a lad I used to sing. Why not try that now, where it would disturb no one? My musical talent had never bred envy in others, but out on the Atlantic to realize what it meant, you should have heard me sing. You should have seen the porpoises leap when I pitched my voice for the waves and the sea, and all that was in it. Old turtles with large eyes poked their head up out of the sea as I sang Johnny Boker, and We'll Pay Darby Doyle for His Boots, and the like. But the porpoises were, on the whole, vastly more appreciative than the turtles. They jumped a deal higher. One day, when I was humming a favourite chant, I think it was Babylon's A Fallen, a porpoise jumped higher than the bowsprit. Had the spray been going a little faster, she would have scooped him in. The seabird sailed round rather shy. July 10, eight days at sea, the spray was twelve hundred miles east of Cape Sable. One hundred and fifty miles a day for so small a vessel must be considered good sailing. It was the greatest run on the spray ever made before or since in so few days. On the evening of July 14, in better humour than ever before, all hands cried, Sail ho! The sail was a barkentine, three points on the weather bow hull down. Then came the night. My ship was sailing along now without attention to the helm. The wind was south, she was heading east. Her sails were trimmed like the sail of the Nautilus. They drew steadily all night. I went frequently on deck, but found all well. A merry breeze kept on from the south. Early in the morning of the 15th, the spray was close aboard the stranger, which proved to be La Vaguisa of Vigo, twenty-three days from Philadelphia, bound for Vigo. A lookout from his masthead had spied the spray the evening before. The captain, when I came near enough, threw a line to me, and sent a bottle of wine across slung by the neck, and very good wine it was. He also sent his card, which bore the name of Juan Gantes. I think he was a good man, as Spaniards go. But when I asked him to report me all well, the spray passing him in a lively manner, he hauled his shoulders much above his head, and when his mate, who knew of my expedition, told him that I was alone, he crossed himself and made for his cabin. I did not see him again. By sundown he was as far astern as he had been ahead the evening before. There was now less and less monotony. On July 16 the wind was northwest and clear, the sea smooth and a large bark hull down came in sight on the lee bow. And at 2.30 p.m. I spoke to the stranger. She was the bark Java of Glasgow, from Peru for Queenstown for orders. Her old captain was bearish. But I met a bear once in Alaska that looked pleasanter. At least, the bear seemed pleased to meet me, but this grisly old man? 
Well, I suppose my hail disturbed his siesta, and my little sloop passing his great ship had somewhat the effect on him that a red rag has upon a bull. I had the advantage over heavy ships by long odds in the light winds of this and the two previous days. The wind was light, his ship was heavy and foul, making poor headway, while the spray with a great mainsail bellying even to light winds was just skipping along as nimbly as one could wish. How long has it been calm about here? roared the captain of the Java as I came within hail of him. Dunno, captain, I shouted back as loud as I could bawl. I haven't been here long. At this, the mate on the forecastle wore a broad grin. I left Cape Sable fourteen days ago, I added. I was now well across towards the Azores. Mate, he roared to his chief officer, mate, come here and listen to the Yankees yarn. Hold down the flag, mate, hold down the flag. In the best of humour, after all, the Java surrendered to the spray. The acute pain of solitude experienced at first never returned. I had penetrated a mystery, and, by the way, I had sailed through a fog, I had met Neptune in his wrath, but he found that I had not treated him with contempt, and so he suffered me to go on and explore. In the log for July 18 there is this entry. Fine weather, wind south-southwest, Porpoises gambling all about. The SS Olympia passed at 11.30 a.m. Longitude west, 34 degrees, 50 minutes. It now lacks three minutes of the half hour, shouted the captain, as he gave me the longitude and the time. I admired the business-like air of the Olympia, but I have the feeling still that the captain was just a little too precise in his reckoning. That may be all well enough, however, where there is plenty of sea-room, but overconfidence, I believe, was the cause of the disaster to the liner Atlantic, and many more like her. The captain knew too well where he was. There were no porpoises at all skipping along with the Olympia. Porpoises always prefer sailing-ships. The captain was a young man, I observed, and had before him, I hope, a good record. Land ho! On the morning of July 19, a mystic dome like a mountain of silver stood alone in the sea ahead. Although the land was completely hidden by the white glistening haze that shone in the sun like polished silver, I felt quite sure that it was Flores Island. At half-past four p.m. it was a beam. The haze in the meantime had disappeared. Flores is 174 miles from Fayal, and although it is a high island, it remained many years undiscovered after the principal group of the islands had been colonised. Early on the morning of July 20, I saw Pico looming above the clouds on the starboard bow. Lower lands burst forth as the sun burned away the morning fog, and island after island came into view. As I approached nearer, cultivated fields appeared, and, oh, how green the corn! 
Only those who have seen the Azores from the deck of a vessel realise the beauty of the mid-ocean picture. At 4.30pm, I cast anchor at Fayal, exactly 18 days from Cape Sable. The American consul in a smart boat came alongside before the spray reached the breakwater, and a young naval officer, who feared for the safety of my vessel, boarded and offered his services as pilot. The youngster, I have no good reason to doubt, could have handled a man of war, but the spray was too small for the amount of uniform he wore. However, after fouling all the craft in port and sinking a lighter, she was moored without much damage to herself. This wonderful pilot expected a gratification, I understand, but whether for the reason that his government and not I would have to pay the cost of raising the lighter, or because he did not sink the spray, I never could make out, but I forgive him. It was the season for fruit when I arrived at the Azores, and there was soon more of all kinds of it put on board than I knew what to do with. Islanders are always the kindest people in the world, and I met none anywhere kinder than the good hearts of this place. The people of the Azores are not a very rich community. The burden of taxes is heavy with scant privileges in return, the air they breathe being about the only thing that is not taxed. The mother country does not even allow them a port of entry for a foreign mail service. A packet passing never so close with mails for Horta must deliver them first in Lisbon, ostensibly to be fumigated, but really for the tariff from the packet. My own letters posted at Horta reached the United States six days behind my letter from Gibraltar, mailed thirteen days later. The day after my arrival at Horta was the feast of a great saint. Boats loaded with people came from other islands to celebrate at Horta the capital, or Jerusalem, of the Azores. The deck of the spray was crowded from morning till night with men, women, and children. On the day after the feast, a kind-hearted native harnessed a team and drove me a day over the beautiful roads all about Fayal, because, he said in broken English, when I was in America and couldn't speak a word of English, I found it hard till I met someone who seemed to have time to listen to my story. And I promise my good saint, then, that if ever a stranger came to my country, I would try to make him happy. Unfortunately, this gentleman brought along an interpreter that I might learn more of the country. The fellow was nearly the death of me, talking of ships and voyages and of the boats he had steered, the last thing in the world I wished to hear. He had sailed out of New Bedford, so he said, for that your wing they called John. My friend and host found hardly a chance to edge in a word. Before we parted, my host dined me with a cheer that would have gladdened the heart of a prince. But he was quite alone in his house. My wife and children all the rest there, he said, 
pointing to the churchyard across the way. "'I move to this house from afar off,' he added, "'to be near the spot where I pray every morning.' I remained four days at Fale, and that was two days more than I had intended to stay. It was the kindness of the islanders and their touching simplicity which detained me. A damsel as innocent as an angel came alongside one day and said she would embark on the spray if I would land her at Lisbon. She could cook flying fish, she thought, but her forte was dressing bacalhao. Her brother Antonio, who served as interpreter, hinted that anyhow he would like to make the trip. Antonio's heart went out to one John Wilson, and he was ready to sail for America by way of the two capes to meet his friend. "'Do you know John Wilson of Boston?' he cried. "'I knew a John Wilson,' I said, but not of Boston. "'He had one daughter and one son,' said Antonio, by way of identifying his friend. "'If this reaches the right, John Wilson, I am told to say that—' Antonio of Pico remembers him. <laughs> End of chapter 3 Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk